0: in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by FanDuel.com, the leader in one-week fantasy football leagues. And right now, FanDuel will match the first deposit dollar up to $200 for the first 50 people who use the promo code HANG at FanDuel.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 3rd, 2014. On this week's show, we'll be joined by ESPN's Paul Feinbaum to discuss SEC football and allegations that the worldwide leader is a vile den of Southeastern Conference bias. Our colleague Amanda Hess will also be here to talk about the story of Lauren Hill, the 19-year-old with an inoperable brain tumor, who fulfilled her dream on Sunday to play in a college basketball game. Seth Stevenson will then be on the show to explain the game League of Legends and the world of competitive video gaming, otherwise known as esports. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Tom Brady's victory and his 16th matchup with Peyton Manning, and how the quarterbacks have evolved over the years. Joining me in Washington D.C. it's Stefan Fatsis author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Congratulations on your wife's interview of Taylor Swift, Stefan. I big, was so proud. It's a big moment for the big family. Big moment for the family. Taylor Swift with a shout-out to my daughter. Huge. Well, she big is nice moment. as she seems, Taylor. Love Taylor Swift.
4: I believe she showed up at the studio in New York Melissa was in Washington. My wife is Melissa Block from NPR. Melissa uh, was in Washington. Taylor was in New York. Taylor showed up wearing a Halloween costume. It was Halloween. She was a, a pegacorn. She's just
2: like real people. I was dressed as a pegacorn <laughs> too, weren't you? <laughs> Love Taylor Swift. As you may have been able to guess. Shake it from up, the, Josh. From the fact that he did not chime in with anything witty and that we have this guest of palooza format this week. Mike Pesca is out this week. Takes a small army of replacements to make up for his wit. And his cache. Of, I think I said shake it up. I meant shake <laughs> it off. You totally lose your tween cred there. I don't let my daughter listen to this podcast for many reasons. As I was saying, it takes a small army to replace uh, Pesca and his cache of surface-to-air missiles. But we will always have whimsy. Watch quick whimsy. Watch this week. Uh, what do you think of the Patriots' fake when they were up twenty-two with five minutes left, and they ran eleven new players <laughs> on the field from the sideline for no reason? Is that like a. I don't know if Belichick can do whimsy, but that was close. I thought, I thought that you were going to ask whether that was part of Asshole Watch,
4: <laughs> our new feature here on Hang Up and Listen. There's a
2: fine line between uh, whimsy and assholery, and I think that was that fine line. We have to find There, it. there was also um, the dude from the Rams leaping offside on, on the field goal attempt well before the ball was snapped and then trying to kick the ball out of the holder's hand. I like, <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, defensive players can kick too, and then a uh, final whimsy watch entry uh, before the Cowboys Cardinals game. A U.S. Navy Seal descended from the scoreboard with his dog. I don't know if Navy Seal. Yeah, I don't. Th- I, I that think... feels more patriotic than yeah, whimsical. Yeah, the patriotic cannot be whimsical,
4: especially in the
2: NFL. These two things do not. It's it's Agreed. not the it's not the peanut butter and chocolate of uh, football pregame tomfoolery. All right, it is now time for our first topic. And when the first-ever rankings for the new four-team college football playoff were released last week, three of the top four teams, Mississippi State, Auburn, and Ole Miss, were from the Southeastern Conference. That will probably be down to two this week after Ole Miss lost to Auburn 35-31 in the saddest way possible with receiver Laquan Treadwell getting tackled, fumbling, and breaking his leg as he was about to go into the end zone for the go-ahead touchdown. But the SEC's traveling circus does not stop for a broken leg. This week, Alabama travels to LSU in a game that will be broadcast in primetime on CBS. Our guest, Paul Feinbaum, will be in Baton Rouge as part of the ESPN-owned SEC Network's traveling roadshow, SEC Nation. Paul is also the host of the greatest sports radio show in this or any other universe, the Paul Feinbaum Show, which is simulcast on the very same SEC Network. And he's also the author of My Conference Can Beat Your Conference, Why the SEC Still Rules College Football. Welcome to the show, Paul.
5: Thank you so much. And, yes, I was... Kind of lamenting, as you mentioned, only uh, one SEC school will be in the playoff this week. You know why not four? <laughs> why
2: not four? Why not? Why not five? So uh, it's clear from the subtitle of your book, if not the title of your book, and if not the name <laughs> of the network that you work for, what your opinion is about the SEC. But I don't know if you've detected it, and I'm not sure why. Hopefully, you can explain. I feel like the rest of the country is more angry this year about the SEC and its supremacy. Than in past years. Do you believe that that's true? And if so, why?
5: Well, it's interesting. It started out with with a little bit of SEC fatigue, but not as much because of that seven-game or seven-year run by the SEC ending with 13 seconds to go with Auburn. But but once we got a good look at Florida State and realized that they had absolutely no chance of repeating, the SEC uh, hate began, and and then it, I think it reached its absolute zenith the other day with, with three of the top four in the, in the polls. So, yeah, I mean, it corrects itself. It's a little bit like uh, the stock market. And now the debate has moved from will the SEC get in the four-team playoff? Will two teams get in? I, I don't uh, – right now I would say probably not. Georgia helped uh, that cause, the anti-cause the other day. But, uh, you yeah, know, it, it's understandable. Uh, and, and, frankly, uh, I get it. I mean, I know I, I, I'm accused of being the biggest drum beater for the SEC, you don't have to be since everyone else already is
4: well you don't have to beat a drum necessarily to recognize which teams are better than which other teams so for those of us in other parts of the country who don't really care about southern football that much (laughs) tell us why these teams are so much better in the eyes of their fans and it's not just because it's their fans
5: yeah, I mean, I was reading uh, something in the, in the Wall Street Journal, which is where I usually go for my sports information today, and, and you had two opinionists on the sports page saying which game is going to be the best of the season, and they both picked the Iron Bowl, and, and, and there's a reason for that, because Auburn and Alabama uh, have swapped national championships or na- national championship appearances over the uh, last five years. I mean, five consecutive years, a school from the state of Alabama Making it uh, to the biggest show, and that was a one versus two. So, I mean, it comes with the fact that, you know, they, I mean, let's state the obvious they get the best players, um, you know, they have the biggest stadiums, they have the biggest facilities, the highest paid coaches, and then, that is not to say that good football doesn't go on elsewhere. I mean, I, I think the Ohio State Michigan State game is worth watching at least for five or ten minutes Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that Ohio State lost to Virginia Tech, which is lost to everyone. So okay, I'm, I'm really going to get excited by that. Now Michigan State lost to Oregon. I mean, I, it lost badly, but still, I, I'm respectful. Where every week down here, uh, I mean, you had the Ole Miss LSU game, which went down to the final gut wrenching play, and then you mentioned the Ole Miss Auburn game the other night, which is you know, one of the most uh, haunting scenes i have uh, ever witnessed uh, so i mean I, I don't i don't even know why i'm explaining it I think it's
4: self-evident. It's a cyclical though, I mean, Michigan, Ohio State did used to be nationally relevant, Notre Dame did, USC, UCLA used to be important. We're in a cycle, I mean, but the cycle is sort of calcifying, it's petrifying because of the changes in college sports, and it's only going to get more acute as the biggest programs dump more money and have more advantages. I mean, ultimately, Paul, and I'm getting off track because we do want to talk about the playoff and all this other stuff. You talk about inequity in college football and trying to whittle down to four or two teams who are the best in the country. Wouldn't it be better if it was more like the NFL and there were 32 schools that got to compete for this? So we can just say, hey, Auburn, Alabama, whoever, you know, you, you guys are the best already. We recognize that. Let's make it even clearer than it is now.
5: Well, I mean, I think it's a fair uh, discussion, but, but I, I really like the way it is. And, I mean, even last year with only, with only two and the year before, we've had a dramatic finish to the last couple of college football seasons. I'll say the obvious. Alabama lost in, in 2011 uh, in its own stadium to someone from its own division and still found itself playing that very same school for the national title. Why? Because they were a- absolutely the two best schools in the country. I'll never, I'll never forget I. I I was writing for Sports Illustrated's website at the time, and I filed a piece after that game saying, I still think Alabama's the best team, even though it lost to LSU in overtime. And one of those editors at Sports Illustrated who uh, went to school at Princeton, who has never been uh, below uh, Ellis Island, uh, said...
4: Princeton's that's below Ellis Island, but that's okay. Go ahead.
5: <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, uh, you know, that's the most uh, disingenuous thing I've ever seen. And I said, well, great. You know, don't print it. Uh, it happened to be true. The point is that this has been going on a while, as you said. Uh, the next year, Alabama lost to Texas A&M on the second week of November, still found its way back in. And that, again, one versus two. I don't think 32 would, is really the answer, because I don't think there, there are 32 teams worth seeing, like, or 16, I guess, in the NFL. But, but I think eight would really be a good number. Uh, I think that's the, that's the ideal number. Four is a compromise. But don't forget Bill Hancock, the head of the BCS, said, two and a half years ago, the BCS is perfect at one versus two, and they walked into a meeting and, and they changed it.
2: So, complaints about the SEC, you know, they're not in a vacuum. If you look anywhere on this uh, vast, grand internet of ours, you'll find people complaining about ESPN being the entity that's propping up the SEC. As you mentioned, seven straight national championship you don't really need anybody to, to prop you up. But there's the SEC network now, um, there's multi-billion dollar deal by ESPN to broadcast SEC games. You're on the ESPN payroll. Do you think that there is something compromising about, um, you know, ESPN's position as the kind of lead trumpet blare for this conference?
5: Well, listen, I mean, the the day the SEC network was announced, I mean, you knew this was coming. And I don't know why some of us are in shock that people are are bringing this, this charge, but but uh, without trying to sound like I'm on the uh, on the PR payroll, which I'm not. I mean, the SEC, excuse me, the SEC, the ESPN has deals with everyone. I mean, you know that. And the biggest deal out right now in college sports is is the Big Ten. So the, you know the, would the with ESPN like to continue that? Yeah, of course. But I don't think you have to have SEC bias or, or push the agenda when the AP poll which is supposedly objective and, or subjective, has already done it for you. So I mean, I, I find that to be humorous, and, and I don't think you can really say until the end. The last time I saw something like this happen was '06, when you had the uh, Michigan State-Ohio State game. It was one versus two. A lot of people were arguing for Michigan, and Florida ended up getting in. Now, do, does ESPN have an influence on certain things? Without a doubt. I, I mean, I think the ESPN helped. RG3, a couple of years ago, ascended toward the, the Heisman Trophy in the final two weeks. But but I don't think ESPN wants anything but the largest possible audience for the college football playoff. And you tell me, would the audience be bigger with uh, Florida State, Alabama, Oregon, and Michigan State in there just for the sake of argument, or Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Auburn and Florida State. I mean, I mean, I don't know about you, but Mississippi State versus anyone doesn't exactly resonate across the country. So I don't think they're they're going to push that agenda. I think they just they'll take whatever they get.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly true. And LSU Alabama and the BCS title rematch was one of the lowest rated BCS championship games ever. And I think that the playoff is going to be a venue for these kinds of re- regional arguments to play out. And college football is kind of one of the last bastions of you know, regional triumphalism, not only in sports, but I think in the country. Like, it's pretty hilarious and awesome that people chant SEC, SEC, <laughs> um, when uh, you know their teams won. People feel loyalty to this conference and, you know, Pac-12 fans or whatever the hell that conference is called now, Big Ten fans, they feel loyalty to their conferences, and it's this kind of like an ingenious ploy to get those conferences and these fans, you know, of different regions of the sport, to face off with each other. And the SEC season is essentially like a death match, so there's no way that you could get more than you know at most two in the playoff. And people just seem annoyed. It was the same with the BCS. People seem mad that we don't already know who's going to be in the playoff, like <laughs> with five weeks left to to go in the season. Um, that there are, you know, three teams in the SEC and the standings or whatever and don't seem to realize that they're just going to off each other and then we are going to see that cross-section of of different teams playing in the big tournament at the end.
5: Well, I think, I think you come down to why, why, do, why do SEC fans chant SEC, SEC? Although, you know, I've lived in Alabama most of my life, and I can tell you that the overwhelming majority of Alabama fans rooted against Auburn last year and rejoiced afterwards, even though they don't like Florida State, and Auburn fans not one time pulled for Alabama. You have those little regional uh, hate things happening, but people in the South are different. I realize where both of you reside. I I realize the view of the South, but the the view of the South toward everyone else is is us against the world, and I'll never forget, just to give you uh, an example of how it occasionally becomes narrow-minded. I I I spoke uh, once to a Wall Street Journal reporter on our show about some article the individual had done on on the SEC it was somewhat negative and the next caller to our show said so why would you why would you put those those Wall Street Journal writers on they're just a bunch of elitist liberals from New York and I said do you have any idea who owns the Wall Street Journal and, and the uh, fan said this caller said it doesn't make any difference they're just a bunch of liberals I'm like going okay <laughs> this this are, this not this <laughs> argument is not possible so if you if you live in New York Regardless of, of, your, of your party or, or philosophical uh, persuasion, people in the South don't like you. And it, I, I think it goes that way with, uh, with college football, that we, we don't like, I say we, Southerners don't care for Ohio State or Michigan State or, or, or anyone else that plays football because they're not in the South. I mean, this isn't, you know, it, well, I'm not trying to get into a political conversation here, but that's how a lot of Southerners or fans of the SEC view the rest of the world.
4: We're still got, as Josh mentioned, five weeks to go here. The football playoff committee, high council, tribal organization, whatever they're called, they've decided to put out these weekly uh, rankings. Basically, I guess, to just get people like you talking and having people like you get calls into your show. Not that you need information, not that you need material for people to call your show, Paul. Do you think there's any value in this, A? And B, does this committee serve any sort of real purpose in your mind. They, they've come out as sort of anti-math, anti-analytics. It seems like been, they've been tasked with watching a lot of football and sort of picking their favorite teams. Well, math
2: was invented by liberals in New York. That's a
5: good point. <laughs> well, I, I don't like what they're doing. Um, I think they did it because they could. You know, it doesn't hurt to have a partner in ESPN that's willing to put you on in prime time every Tuesday night at 7:30 but and to me and I I said this to Jeff Long we had one of these mock committee meetings a couple of weeks ago in Bristol Connecticut and I will tell you about the four at the 4 hour mark I was like going you could you, you could not pay me to be on this committee I mean you you're looking at all this uh, ESPN stats and all you know comparing Oregon versus TCU and non-conference and and finally you know as as exciting as college football is on saturday night at eleven o'clock it's not really exciting sitting in a room with an iPad they're taking themselves too seriously that's part of the problem they're acting like they are on some council literally trying to to solve the world's issues whether it's Ebola or famine they're sitting there talking about we you know we go home and you know and then they all brag about Condoleezza Rice knows how to you know tell the difference between a cover two and whatever else i don't really care i think you could the three of us on December six, could sit at the end of a bar in Manhattan with that morning's New York Times and and pretty well come up with the four teams. It's not very difficult, but they have turned this into uh, the next version of splitting an atom, which is fine with you know if they want to do it. But you know I watch. I'm curious. The thing that I, I believe the least of what they have said so far is that every Tuesday, or actually they meet on Mondays and Tuesdays in, in Dallas. They start from scratch. They, uh, they hit the reset button. They don't even look at what they had done previously. Now, do you believe that?
2: I don't think that there's a button that, that could be big enough to erase your memory
5: of <laughs> no. what happened
2: in previous weeks. That seems kind of silly.
5: Considering it's, it's, it's in every newspaper in the country, at least those who still publish.
2: Well, Paul, have a good time in Baton Rouge. I'm from Louisiana, so I'm all for the SEC bias so long as it benefits LSU. So just keep that in mind. And I've been to Mississippi once.
5: <laughs> you should go back. It's quite a state. I've been there too many times this football season.
2: And you can watch Paul and the Paul Feinbaum show. You can see him on SEC Nation. You can read his book, My Conference is Better Than Your Conference. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Paul. It was my
5: pleasure. Thank you, guys.
2: All right. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor, FanDuel.com, a fantasy football site that allows you to start fresh every week. Um, I'm sitting across from Stephen Fatsis, who some of you may know him as the author of the book, Word Freak. Others of you may know him. Hang up and listen. I know him as the guy who drafted uh, Percy Harvin for his fantasy team. How did that work out for you? Uh,
4: Not so well, though he did have a bunch of points this week, and I didn't play him, though, and I'm ready to cut
2: him. I wish I could cut him. I can cut him. (laughs) You can. If you use FanDuel.com, it's a fantasy football site that allows you to start fresh every week. You can erase these Percy Harvin type people from your from your roster. From your from your memory, from ever drafting them. It lets you uh, win real money by picking a new roster of players every week. So you can pick a fresh team and give it another shot. And if you win, you get an immediate cash payout. Entry fees start at just a dollar. There's no season-long commitment or upfront fees. FanDuel pays out more than ten million dollars every single week this NFL season. You can go to FanDuel.com and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use our code HANG, and sign up now. FanDuel has a new user special. They'll match your first deposit dollar up to 200 bucks. means $200 for free. The offer is only good for the first 50 people that use our code HANG. It's FanDuel.com, where every week is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. On an NFL Sunday, ESPN's Sports Center spent more time covering a Division III women's basketball game than any other sporting event. In that game, played before 10,000 fans in Cincinnati, 19-year-old Lauren Hill scored four points for Mount St. Joseph in a 66-55 victory over Hiram College. The game was moved up by two weeks with the permission of the NCAA because Hill, a college freshman who is a basketball star in high school, has an inoperable brain tumor, and is not expected to live past December. Let's listen to a bit of Tom Rinaldi's feature on Hill, which aired on SportsCenter on Sunday night. Tumor. The cancer. The fear
0: were an encore. She was.
2: All right, joining us to talk about Lauren Hill and her basketball appearance is our colleague Amanda Hess, Who was I think the only Slate employee to be featured in the Best American Sports Writing. So it's about time we had you on the Hang Up Listen podcast, Amanda. How are you?
3: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
2: Sure. And I want to ask uh, Stefan here first. What, do you th- what did you think of the game, the kind of lead up to it, and the way that it was depicted and talked about on ESPN and elsewhere on, around the web? I mean, I sh- we should be clear that this was, it wasn't just ESPN. This was kind of the biggest story. In sports this weekend, if you 're reading twitter twitter, if you 're on facebook if you 're anywhere online, this game was really what people were talking about
4: there's absolutely nothing bad that you can say about these kinds of events and we've seen a lot of these right there was uh that kid jack hoffman who's seven year old with a a brain tumor who was allowed to return uh football for a touchdown in the red white scrimmage at nebraska a few years ago you look on on youtube there are clips of kids with down syndrome and autism that are allowed a chance to play in games and we've seen actual ncaa games where athletes who are injured have been allowed to make a a, a key shot or take part for one reason or another. And yes, these are incredibly inspirational. And you can argue, I think, that using sports as a way to fulfill people's dreams or to make them feel good when they are in situations like this, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in fact, maybe that's what sports should be. Maybe sports need to be more lighthearted and to let us reflect about their own importance and and giving people who are in in crisis or, or, or ill an opportunity to do something once. On the other hand, the way they are covered is as these treacly hallmark moments, and they are incredibly transparent for the way they're covered. And that may sound cynical, but I think for a lot of listeners, readers, viewers, they can come off that way. And I think the way ESPN handled the Lauren Hill story did come off that way.
2: Amanda, what did you think of the way that ESPN covered uh, the Hill game?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's super inspiring and sad and also incredibly cliched. Uh, and I think if we expand this universe to all of these other, you know, different times when this has happened, ostensibly, I think there's, they're trying to tell us that there's something more important than winning. But often, like, that's not actually the case. So they will put in the autistic player at the very last four minutes of the season when the team has like already won the game or, you know, like the last play in the football season when it's not going to sort of like change the course of the season one way or the other. And so it does seem a little bit like it is enforcing the idea that winning is the most important thing because if it had been a really close game then that probably would not have happened.
2: I mentioned at the top of the segment that she scored four points in the game. So Lauren Hill is in the very late stages of her life, the late stages of this cancer and is not really able to play high level basketball when she wasn't in the game on Sunday. She was sitting on the bench, you know, wearing sunglasses just because of, you know, she's not and headphones. Able, able to be in this environment. So she, when she gets on the floor. The other team allows her to score and everyone kind of huddles around her and cheers and the crowd goes crazy. So it was this sort of like pre-planned moment like that. But it was very important to her that this be a real game. And you kind of see this with all the, you know, people that we talked about, whether it's a, a child, whether it's somebody who has, you know, challenges due to illness, whether it's somebody who has, you know, mental challenges, that it's very important that this be a real game. And it's kind of touching, I think, that, um, you know, when the other team, when the fans, when everyone kind of contributes to creating this perfect moment for somebody. Again, what you know, no matter what the circumstance is. And I think the only reason to be cynical and the only way that that factors in again is like when the music starts to swell. And when, you know, it seems like Everyone on the Internet wants a piece of this, whether it's the Upworthies or whether it's, you know, Rick Riley writing these columns for ESPN and for Sports Illustrated or whether it's, you know, SportsCenter doing these features. But, you know, it's a way for everyone involved to feel good about themselves, I think, for good reason. And it just feels a little bit like that's being kind of exploited or I think exploited. I think that's the word I'm going to leave it on, Seven exploited.
3: It also seems like, you know, you said that regardless of the circumstances, this is something that people have agreed is like a really good thing to do. And I think that's true for people with, you know, terminal illness, with developmental disabilities. It seems like this is the very least that we can do. But often it's extended to people who like sprained their ankle And I feel like those people can just go fuck themselves. Like, we don't need to have an inspirational story about you playing in a game after you injured yourself. Those I don't understand.
4: Um, One that you might be referring to, or maybe you're not, Amanda, was back in 1998 when the Big East uh, Basketball Conference let a player on Connecticut, Nakisha Sales, make a layup so that she could set a school scoring record. And both teams that were involved in this, UConn and Villanova, agreed. And the Big East agreed to let it happen. And Nikesha Sale scored on the first basket of the game. They let Villanova score. The game continued. Everyone applauded. She got her record. Cheapened, Maybe. I don't know. You can argue. The worst part about it was what the Big East commissioner said, Mike Tranghese at the time. He approved it and he said, it's a women's sport. This was a female player. I'm a man. I'm not going to pretend to handle decisions on men and women exactly the same way. I mean, that's just one example of how these events can be demeaning. I think that's the question that I think we should talk about a little bit. It's sort of – for Lauren Hill, this was incredibly important. Would it have been any less important if it didn't happen in the context of an actual game? She wanted to play college basketball. What if it had been merely a tribute to her and she walked out for the lineup announcements? What is it about actually running around and playing that is so important and makes sports so important to people?
2: Well, for her, I think it was – kind of a vehicle to get a message out about pediatric cancer mm-hmm. and you know that the game itself raised $40,000 for pediatric cancer. And so I think she was actually as kind of one of her final acts very kind of savvy about the fact that she could use her story in this very kind of selfless way to raise awareness and raise money and you saw how, you know, with the ice bucket challenge that was in large measure around sports, around this guy, Peter Frades, who is a college baseball player at Mm -hmm. Boston College who developed ALS. And, um, you know, that was covered on SportsCenter, too, about, you know, how a lot of the athletes who got involved in, in that were doing it to support Frades. And that kind of went off and, you know, raised tens and tens of millions of dollars for ALS. And I think there is something to be said about how sports has this unique capacity for uplift in the world and, you know, in our society, it's like, what else could somebody who with a couple months to live or whether it's somebody who, you know, is autistic or something, what other kind of venue could you have for that person to receive acclaim? And this is kind of like the positive, like, that's a dark side about sports. It's like when we fet people and celebrate them, not for, you know, what they do in school or anything, but because they score a touchdown or whatever. Like, this is the positive side of that distorted place that we have for sports in society. It's that, like, what else could, you know, a kid like Jack Hoffman do? Or what else could, how could we receive them and show them, you know, love or affection? Like, I can't really think of a comparable thing.
3: On the one hand, I think it's a powerful message that this is a woman's sport. And so, it's communicating that sports can be really, really important to girls and to women, too. But I also think it's potentially suspect uh, because, like, most of the time, people don't really care about women's basketball. The idea that this one game drew all of these spectators, I view a little bit cynically because it just seems it might be easier for people to co-opt women's basketball, to turn it into something other than a sport, maybe because they don't care as much about the sport to begin with.
4: But with something like this, I do feel like it might be overly cynical to, to throw the entire sport under the bus because this woman happens to be a woman and that she played you know, Division three basketball or wanted to. It is hard. Like Josh was saying, this is the one outlet in society where people can uniformly agree. And if we acknowledge also that we are so invested in sports and that we take them so seriously and we believe that there is such grand import – these small moments do help ground us, I think, and remind us that they aren't just games.
2: But Amanda's right, I think. And I hadn't really thought about this point before that the more kind of important, quote unquote, a game is, the more we value um, the integrity of it. Right. So if Lauren Hill was, you know, Lance Hill and he played for Duke and this was a game in the final four, you know, there wouldn't be... The, the other team giving him the opportunity to score a no, layup. So there'd be
4: a pregame tribute, and the money would still be raised, and everyone would still leave the arena feeling good about the event.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, Jason McElwain, the um, autistic team manager for a high school team, um, this was, I think, in 2006 or so. If we have, like, kind of a continuum of these types of events, this, I think, stood at the very top of that continuum for a couple reasons. First... This wasn't done with kind of any advance notice given to um, local or national media. It was the coach, I think, genuinely wanting to give this kid, who had been the team manager for all these years, a chance to play. He gets in the game. It's a real game where his teammates are passing him the ball and want him to shoot and stuff, but the other team is actually like playing. They're not like giving him a free chance at the basket. And he just keeps making all of these three-pointers. He scores 20 points in this game. And at the end of the game, everyone from the stands rushes on the court, lifts them on their shoulders. Like, I, you know, got teary-eyed. I cried when I saw this for the first time. I think millions of people did. Because it felt like this totally organic moment where this team, this town, got behind this kid. He was given the opportunity to play. And he succeeded in an actual competitive game. Um, And it's not to say that any of these other moments are not worth doing and that they're not— special in their own way. But, like, I think that one kind of stands alone and really inspired, I think, a lot of these other efforts. Um, but it's still, I think, there's something special and unique and not, you know, replicable well, because about we, what happened because
4: there. Because we love the spontaneous, organic nature of sports. So there was a, that episode a few years ago where a woman's college softball player homered and then tore her ACL rounding first. And fell down and couldn't walk, couldn't finish the tour of the bases. And she was picked up by two of the opposing players and carried and touched each base until she scored. I mean, those are genuine moments in sportsmanship. And we do love those so much because they feel out of the ordinary. They feel the counterweights to the millions and the gravity, the cultural obsession that we have for, for sports generally.
3: But it does make you wonder why this incident was a spontaneous, organic moment. Like, obviously, this kid was really good at playing basketball. Why wasn't he playing before this? You know, why was he given, like, one last chance to get off the bench and score 20 points?
2: Yeah, that kid was clearly the secret weapon. Poor coaching. (laughs) Um, You got to get that guy in the game.
3: I just want to make one last point that I don't think has come up, but when I read that media coverage of the 1998 game where the injured girl was allowed to break a record uh, and it was something that was agreed between the two teams. No one mentioned anything about the woman who held the record before her whose record was being destroyed by like collusion and cheating.
4: That seems antithetical to the purpose of sports is what it seems.
3: Yeah, I mean someone held that record. I'm not sure why what the justification was for I guess she deserved it more. I guess, I guess she did.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think if we're talking about, the, about continuums, then that I think would be on the bottom rung. Somebody who was not particularly disadvantaged and just, you know, happened to, you know, hurt herself right before breaking a record. I think that that was something that uh, not a lot of people got behind. So Amanda Hess, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Last month, Seoul, South Korea's Sangam Stadium, which hosted a World Cup soccer match back in 2002, played host to a very different kind of competition. As tens of thousands of fans watched from the stands, Samsung White defeated Star Horn Royal Club to win the League of Legends 2014 World Championship and the $1 million first place prize. League of Legends is a computer game, and its practitioners and rabid fans refer to the game's top levels as eSports. For a taste of what this all sounds like, here's some commentary from the 2014 World Championship.
3: World Club trying to turn that into a larger strength. Flash away. They hook him in. Could be. And getting a kill here. That blade of the room king is down, so they
4: don't have too much more catch potential. But they do have pawn. (laughs) What a shot! There be! And from Looper, it's still up. That was just him walking on down. The timing from White has been
2: impeccable already. So it sounds like a broadcast of any uh, old sports game, except maybe with a little bit more teleportation, a few more turrets, a little more shooting. It's Seth Stevenson of Slate for the last couple of weeks, he's been immersing himself in this world. He will be our, our guide. Um, after watching him play a couple of games in the office last week, I can tell you, Stefan, with some confidence that he has absolutely no clue what he's doing. <laughs> Um, but even so, Seth, we are very happy to have you and your thumbs on Hang Up and Listen.
0: Thank you for having me on. I resent that characterization of my League of Legends abilities. I would say I have a minimal idea <laughs> of what I'm doing. I don't. I have more of an idea than you have, Josh, for instance.
2: Oh, that is, that is extremely true, and that's why we've had you on the show. There is a gradient here of, of knowledge. I will acknowledge that. But explain to us what um, this game is all about. Like, if you log in for the first time, you pick a character, you roam around on the battlefield. Like, set the scene. Describe to people who have never played it before what you'll see.
0: All right, you're going to log in. You're going to, if you play the classic version of this game, which is a five versus five, all real humans playing on a a square-shaped battle map known as the summoners rift uh, you'll log on you'll first need to pick a champion so there's I think there's about 121 different champions you can choose from they're these like sorceresses and weird scaly animals and some of them are humanoid and some of them are like spider beasts and each of them has different skills Skills and different vulnerabilities, and you can you use them to do to play different roles in the game. It's very specialized. So you pick one of those. It's a fateful decision. Obviously, when I when I picked it, or when you first log on, pick you'll have no idea. You'll have no basis for choosing one over the other. I just picked the cutest one because I thought that would be fun. Uh, and then you'll timo. have four random. Yeah, I picked timo He's a furry little guy with goggles. He's great. He shoots poisonous blow darts. And then you'll be randomly assigned four teammates from somewhere out there in the internet ether, and they're, they're all going to be you know 15 to 25-year-old dudes, most likely. And then you're on, and then your team of five will face off against another team of five on this battlefield. And the battlefield is square-shaped. You start in opposite corners, and it's kind of like capture the flag. You've got your home base that you're defending. They've got their home base. You're trying to attack and destroy it. There are three uh, main open lanes, like highways, that go from the, between the bases, and that's where a lot of the, a lot of the melees happen. Happen in those open lanes, but then in between the lanes there are these jungles that players can roam through, sort of gorilla style. And then they'll appear out of the bushes suddenly and attack you. They'll gang up, and you know you'll you'll be facing one guy, and then two guys will come out of the jungle and they'll gank you, which is the term for ambushing you. And if you're me, you just constantly get ganked and die and regenerate back at your home base and go back out to do it again. I wish I could regenerate back at my home base. <laughs>
4: This is a track that, as Josh mentioned in the intro, tens of thousands of live fans you can watch when you're online. You can watch other games, too, online, right? If, I'm, if, I, if I wanted to watch you play, I could do that, correct?
0: Uh, you could watch me play if I broadcast it on Twitch.tv, I think. Um, you could watch the pros, for sure. You could watch the, the World Championship matches stream. Uh, a lot of the pros will, will stream their practice games, even, so you could watch them right. practice and see how they uh, rehearse their choreographies.
2: More than 30 million watched the... World Championships last year, more than right. watched the World Series. More than watched NBA Finals games, more than watched NHL Stanley Cup games. More than watched NCIS New Orleans more than watch the Golden
4: Girls from the 1980s. This was a conversation we had last week. So I un- totally understand the appeal of playing this. And if I were f- between 15 and 25, I would probably be into this as well. I think that the genius here is how League of Legends has combined the elements of actual sports. I mean, we're talking about a five-on-five game where you needs teamwork and the idea is to do something to the opposition. Hmm, sounds like a sport that we're familiar with. The appeal here is clear. What's the appeal for watching? And I understand the appeal of watching arcane things that you're good at. I mean, I will admit to watching Scrabble online I'm um, in watching great players play games. But what's the appeal for tens of thousands or millions of people here? What, how has League of Legends managed to transform this from a niche gamer activity to something that is way broader and generating
0: revenue? I think you kind of answered your own question when you you said you will watch Scrabble. There are 67 million monthly active players on League of Legends. All those people, you know, love League of Legends like you love Scrabble. So the idea that 32 million people would watch the World Championships is is not insane at all. You know, it's a massively popular game. And if you love playing the game, then you love watching it played at its highest levels. And it's a very rich, complicated game. There's a lot of strategic nuance. There's a lot to learn. Um, It's kind of like the NFL. If you watch the NFL, if you were an alien, and dropped onto Earth, if you were Timo, dropped onto Earth, the furry guy with goggles, and you, when you watch an NFL game, it's incredibly complicated, and there are very specialized roles and complicated rules, and you have, you'd have no idea what's going on. And that's what League of Legends, watching a League of Legends championship game, would feel like to most people who've never played the game. But if you've played the game or you've watched a lot before, I think it's a very rich experience.
2: And it's also a pretty short, bite-sized experience. It's not like a ponderous, uh, you know spectator sport, um, you know, baseball, football, basketball, where you have to sit through commercials, you have to do whatever and you have Well and playing it the
4: same thing, Josh. I mean it's not something that requires days to explore an alien world and to
0: find new hidden things. I mean these are relatively short bursts, correct? Yeah, so this is not like Grand Theft Auto, where you have this open-ended, you know, incredibly huge, sprawling universe that you can explore for months on end. This battlefield is very contained. It's the same every time when you log on. It's this little square battlefield that's not very big. And the game is usually done within like 25 to 35 minutes, or if I'm on your team, like 15 minutes, because I'm terrible. I'll <laughs> completely screw up
2: your chances. So there, this is an American company that uh, made this game. It's very popular here. The Staples Center was sold out for the previous championship, but it's way bigger. It's you know, the center of this universe is South Korea and you have these, you know, teams. The the championship team is a bunch of Korean guys. Um some of the top players are Korean and the gaming culture there. Just if you call something esports, like if I called podcasting p sports, it doesn't mean it's actually a sport. But in South Korea, it seems like it is actually treated as a major league sport. Isn't
4: Riot Games sponsoring players? Aren't they sort of making them full-time
2: professionals so that they can practice and play? That is true. But Seth, there's no question in Korea, like if you asked somebody that this is a sport or that this is um, a major competitive undertaking...
0: Oh, I think absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you're selling out a 40,000-seat World Cup soccer stadium, yeah, that's huge. And these guys are massive celebrities. The winning team was sponsored by Samsung. In fact, they were in the final eight, in the Elite Eight bracket of the World Championships, there were two different teams sponsored by Samsung, Samsung White and Samsung Blue. Yeah, and these guys uh, are big celebrities. There's, you know, the guy who won the MVP for this year's championship is this player named Mata. Uh, That's like his screen name is Mata. He's a support player, which means he comes comes in and backs you up when you're in a rumble. Um, And he'll just roam over the board and suddenly appear to back you up in a fight out of nowhere. And people will watch highlights of his, like, best support performances where he suddenly jumps out of the bushes and ganks somebody. These guys are big stars, and it was a million-dollar top prize um, for for these five guys that won the championship. So this is huge over there.
2: And I guess I was kind of getting at this before. Just because you call something esports that doesn't necessarily mean it's a sport it's kind of a marketing effort by this company riot games right where they're not making money off of selling subscriptions to the game it's free they're not making money i think off these competitions even though they sell tickets again this is this is marketing for for the game and they actually do make money by selling like you know, you can trick out Timo with, like, a cool vest or something. I'm just making that up. But they, like, sell different things to make your avatar look cool.
0: Actually, uh, the, the most recent one uh, was you could trick him out to look like the Easter bunny. And instead of planting explosive mushrooms, which is what Timo usually does, he could, ex- he could plant explosive <laughs> Easter eggs.
2: So you pay whatever, how, however many Two dollars for, for that. yeah. So how much of the idea that this is a sport is actually part of a marketing gimmick by this company, and how much should we buy into that, that marketing?
0: So now we're going to get into sort of an existential discussion about what what is a sport. So, you know, is chess a sport? Well, people call it a mind sport, right? Because the physical aspect of chess, okay, you need a lot of endurance. You need to be able to concentrate for long stretches, and there's a physical component to that. But really, the, the skill involved is not about agility or coordination or anything like that. Now, what about these video games? Well, there is incredible hand-eye coordination um, required to play the, these at a top level, right? You need to to have make decisions very quickly and then execute them with you know keystrokes and moving your mouse around and that's the physical component i'm willing to accept that as a sport as much as i'm willing to accept that darts is a sport or that billiards is a sport i mean what's the difference we're talking about you know maybe you can be a little bit portly and still play but you better have sick hand eye to excel
4: and the difference is probably that one thing is happening in a virtual world, and the other is happening in a in a non virtual world. In um, as much as the the effect of the action, the thing that we're watching is on a screen. It's not the human being that's actually performing the action. And maybe that's a distinction without a difference when it comes to sports. But it is a, it is a
0: distinction. It's a distinction, sure, that the human being is not in fact, you know, firing a laser tipped space arrow Which would be pretty um, cool. at, a, at a spider beast, but the human being is executing a very complex series of keystrokes and mouse movements, um, and doing it in coordination with the teammate sitting next to him is also, you know, executing complex series of keystrokes. I accept it as a, as a sport. I mean, I, I think it's good to call it an e-sport to distinguish that it's not exactly the same as, say, uh, NBA basketball, but I, I'll take it. I'll take it at, at face. Um, and I think that these sports are, uh, eSports are going to be huge, you know, moving into the future. There's very few injuries in eSports. You can instantly play against anyone in the world. And if you think about it a little like soccer where you don't need much, right? You just need a ball, an open space, and you know, you can put some t-shirts down for goals. Okay, you need a PC to play League of Legends, but you don't need some souped-up graphics card. You don't need a specialized gaming console. All you need is a regular old PC with a keyboard and mouse and an internet connection, and suddenly you can compete against people all over the world at all sorts of levels, and that is very appealing to a lot of people who might not be able to excel at a sport that requires height or girth or speed and agility but might be able to excel at a sport that requires really quick keyboard strokes.
4: Ultimately though this is, a, this is a business story. I mean League of Legends and Riot Games have succeeded in part because you can play on a PC and the reason that that has been so appealing particularly in Asia where countries have actually banned some console games. Uh, I was reading a long piece in PC World about the success of League of Legends that talked about that as a real crucial factor in the rise of the game. Where do these games go? I mean the The games that have a revenue base, like Magic the Gathering, where you need to buy new cards, those have managed to sustain themselves and been bought out by big gaming companies because of this replaceable source of rules. You don't necessarily have that here, though this will be reprogrammed and the visuals will change. Is there a growth potential for esports, or is it just until we find, you know, League of Legends will ultimately be replaced by another game that will be even more attractive to the same
0: audience? sure it'll be replaced by another game that'll be more attractive. The same way that League of Legends replaced this game called Dota that a lot of people played and and a lot of them shifted over from Dota to League of Legends. There will always be a new game on the block. Um, And I think, you know, in terms of revenue, you know, this is the freemium model. We've seen that a lot in a lot of, you know, media outlets. The New York Times does that. Actually, Slate does that, where we give you incredible journalism for free, and then we invite you to pay a little bit extra if you want some special bonus features. And that's basically uh, what Riot Games, which is uh, started by a couple of American guys. That's basically what they're doing here. It's freemium. They're giving you the product for free, and then hoping you'll be inspired to pay extra for merchandise, for to wear T-shirts that with Timo on them, to buy special skins for your characters. And it's working. And and, in every interview with these two guys, they talk about the fact that they prioritize the user experience first. It all flows from that. They do not prioritize revenue first. They just try to make the game as fun as possible, as engrossing as possible, which they succeed at. Every character has this incredibly rich backstory there are new champions being cycled in all the time that you have to learn about, about you know, they have new skills and new vulnerabilities and you need to put in your work in the film room sort of to, to see what these new champions are bringing to the table so you can counter them when someone one of, your, one of your opponents plays them on game day. It is a very rich world that they're making and people who are into that world and spend time in it are willing to spend a little bit more money to, to feel closer to it.
2: All right, Seth, well, after your Slate piece um, comes out this week, I have no doubt that your patented style of running away in fear and dropping explosive (laughs) mushrooms will take the world by storm. Koreans aren't going to, you know, it's just going to totally, totally change the way this game is played. It's like the invention of the forward pass in football. Samsung, I invite you to look at my gameplay on the video we're going to post in Slate. Just
0: take a look. I'm not pushing. But if you like the way I flee in fear, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm ready to join Samsung White. I'm here.
2: All right. Thank you, Seth and read Seth's uh, piece on League of Legends on Slate this week. Thanks, guys. Now it is time for Afterballs. There's currently a total, as Seth mentioned in our previous segment, of 121 uh, characters in League of Legends released uh, champions, they're called. There have been 121 of of them released from Aatrox to Zera. My favorite, though, is Fiddle Six, The Harbinger of Doom. According to the League of Legends wiki, for nearly 20 years, Fiddlesticks has stood alone in the easternmost summoning chamber of the Institute of War. Only the burning emerald light of his unearthly gaze pierces the musty darkness of his dust-covered home. His unmoving face yields no clues, and his scythe stands ready to strike down any who stand before him. Fiddlesticks, the harbinger of doom. Stefan, what is your Fiddlesticks?
4: We all know that high school sports rivalries sometimes require a good, clean prank, like spray painting your school's initials on their field, running your school flag up their flagpole, or stealing the statue of their mascot, or hanging a dead bobcat from the goalposts. In Tullahoma, Tennessee last week, a few days before the big game against Coffee County Central High School, students at Tullahoma High School found the bobcat hanging from the goalposts on the football practice field, Tullahoma's mascot is the Wildcat. Wildcat, Bobcat, close enough. A photo of the suspended Bobcat went viral. A 16 year old Coffee County Central student faces charges in the killing. Bobcat season doesn't start until November 21st, but police have not determined yet whether he or somebody else actually hung the Bobcat from the goalposts. A spokesman for the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency summed up everyone's feelings when he said, that is not a good way to treat a critter for a prank. That's for sure. Tullahoma beat Coffee County 20 to 7 in the 89th coffee pot game. There's a coffee pot for a trophy. The game story in the Tullahoma News did not mention the Bobcat. I wasn't sure which way to take this after all, Joss, because you could go with the animal-related incidents in sports, pranks, and otherwise, or the use of live animals by teams that have animals as mascots, even though this wasn't the team's mascot. But I say, why not both? So let's start in the college ranks. Back in the mid-20th century, Southern Methodist University's Shetland pony mascot, Peruna, Killed the Fordham Rams' ram mascot with a kick to the head, a single blow to the head. Deadspin's Sean Newell last year tried to get to the bottom of the starvation death of the University of Southern Mississippi's Golden Eagle mascot, Nugget, back in the early
2: 1990s. The pony kicking the ram in the head should be a 30 for 30. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I agree.
2: I totally agree. In her 2011
4: Marquette Sports Law Review article about the use of live animals as college mascots, Jessica Barranco recounts the 1977 death of the University of Arkansas's wild hog mascot, Big Red III, who, quote, escaped his exhibit and ravaged the countryside until a farmer gunned him down. The next year, she says, another Arkansas mascot, Ragnar, I don't know, Ragnar? went on a spree killing a coyote, a 450-pound pig, and seven rattlesnakes. Less tragically, Army and Navy have been kidnapping each other's mule and goat mascots for years. Predictably, though, as with our hanged bobcat, there seems to be more animal cruelty in high school mascot hijinks. In a thread on rivalry pranks on a Texas high school sports message board called Smokey.com, S-M-O-K-Y, there were a couple. In the early 1980s, players from a rival of Atlanta High School, which has the rabbit as its mascot, hung dead rabbits on a crossbar. Quote, I am not sure, but I think they put numbers of the Atlanta players with each rabbit. That would be a lovely touch. Another poster recounted the a dead bulldog found hanging in the main entrance to Quitman High School the week of their big rivalry game against Mineola. The Bulldogs went out and whipped Mineola, quote, and let them know not to mess with their school again. Turns out, though, the poster said that Mineola had nothing to do with the hanging. He said a Quitman coach got a bulldog from the vet after it was laid to rest. Clever, motivating policy. you got to love a coach with excellent sense of how to motivate his players. The larger issue in animal mascotry is the mere existence of animal mascots. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals has long lobbied schools to replace live animals with humans. Or, at least at the University of Georgia, which has a bulldog, of course, for its mascot. An animatronic bulldog is what PETA would like. On the grounds that breeding, confining, parading exotic animals in stadiums constitutes mistreatment. A Louisiana Tech bulldog once died of heat stroke. Other mascots on PETA's hit list include your LSU Bengal tiger, Josh. A bald eagle at Boston College. Bears at Baylor. Jaguars at Southern, where one was found dead in its cage in 2004. Lions at North Alabama. And tiger cubs at Massillon High School in Ohio. A couple of final thoughts on the dead bobcat in Tennessee. According to the Tullahoma News, the animal was being kept frozen in case officials need to examine it for further evidence. And the student who uh, is facing charges, he's going to face a maximum $50 fine for killing a bobcat out of season. And that's before the principal gets to him.
2: I I treat my tiger very well. So there's actually some controversy at LSU because they put the tiger in the cage to parade him around the home stadium before games. But this year, whichever version of Mike the Tiger they're on has not gotten into the cage because they don't want to force the tiger into the cage.
4: So you're saying LSU is humane and it's treatment <laughs> of the mascot. No, no, no. Say-
2: what I'm saying is you got to get a tiger that's willing to get in the damn cage. <laughs> Come on. How else are you supposed to intimidate these tough SEC opponents You've got a tiger that's just like, I want to hang out in my habitat. We should have asked Feinbaum about that. We should have. Josh, what's your fiddlesticks, the harbinger of doom? Can you say that in a John Facinda voice, please? Josh, what is your fiddlesticks, the harbinger of doom? As a young man of a certain age, Stefan, when I think of a video game competition, the first thing that comes to mind is the 1989 movie The Wizard, a 96-minute long commercial for the Nintendo Entertainment System in which an autistic-seeming boy named Jimmy wins a $50,000 tournament called Video Armageddon by finding a warp whistle at the last second to advance in Super Mario Bros. 3, which was a new game at the time. Very exciting. Um, but around the same time as that fictional event, in 1990, uh, Nintendo rolled out an actual competition called the Nintendo World Championships in which players battled it out for 8-bit supremacy using a special cartridge that featured the game Super Mario Brothers, the original, Rad Racer, and Tetris, after various city competitions, the competition culminated at the World Finals at Universal Studios Hollywood. Here's a taste of the Nintendo World Finals.
0: He's got it. He's got it set. He's got a long bar, a T-bar. Here it comes. Tetris! 27,000 now, 44,000. Thor Ackerlin under
4: a
2: little bit of pressure, nervously fingering on that controller tonight. Tetris! Tetris! So, who was nervously fingering on that controller? The the uh, uh, person who was doing that was Thor Ackerland. He was thirteen years old when he won the world championships. He also won a ten thousand dollars savings bond, a new car, and a big screen TV. An article in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, he won a said, new car. He did. Kids could drive. Kids, Kids could drive at drive thirteen then. back then. Thor had beaten at that time one hundred twenty-two Nintendo games. So in that Tribune article, he explained his success uh, at Nintendo thusly. A lot of it has to do with experience and getting better at Tetris. It's about 50% of each. I think that's a maxim we can use in all of our lives. 50% of success in life has to do with experience. 50% has to do with getting better at Tetris. Uh, The Orlando Sentinel also uh, noted that in his hotel room, Thor had a portable Nintendo rig, a Sega Genesis connected to another TV and a TurboGrafx-16, not just a Nintendo loyalist. Thor got around with his video game love. And speaking of which, after he won the Nintendo World Championships, he went into business. He became a spokesperson for a company called Comerica that made unlicensed Nintendo games. There's a flyer um, that's been reproduced on the website imockery.com that has a quote from Thor at the top. says, go for gold, racing competition, tense action, challenging adventure, and just great fun are available in Comerica's Gold Series games. Some of these games include Micro Machines, Big Nose the Caveman. The Fantastic Adventures of Dizzy, The Ultimate Stuntman, all of your favorites from Comerica. The Gold Series. So Thor Ackerland kind of disappeared for 20 years. He was recently spotted for the first time in many a decade in a documentary called Ecstasy of Order, The Tetris Masters. And a write-up of that documentary, a guy named Jay Stone, Post Media News, wrote, Ackerland has reached the elusive 30th level of Tetris. A legendary zone that some people don't believe really exists. The most difficult achievement in gaming history, someone calls it. Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters. So, Stefan, remember at the uh, top of the, the segment I mentioned this uh, special cartridge mm-hmm. that they use in the Nintendo World Championships? So, 90 of those cartridges were made, and then another 26 were made in gold. And these are incredibly valuable. The Wikipedia page compares it to the T206. Honus Wagner baseball card of video games. Um, So there have been all these different online auctions of it. Um, January of 2014, on eBay, the bidding went up to $100,000, but the highest bidder refused to pay, arguing that his two-year-old made the bid accidentally, according to Wikipedia. Um, And then another uh, copy of the game, again, starting bid, $5,000, gets up above $100,000, and it says on Wikipedia, if the sale is finalized, it will top the old record-selling price for an NES game, which was for the sale of a sealed copy of Stadium Events at $75,000. Nintendo World Championships, $100,000. If Thor Ackerland had invested wisely, I don't think he would still be able to afford that game, the game that he used to win his championship. Uh, we'd love your feedback When we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And when you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating as well. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Folo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember, Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.